Merry Christmas. I don't know about you, but I love a good origin story. Uh, it seems like in the past decade or so, there's just been uh, a lot of films, uh, movies about origin stories. So whether you're a Marvel fan or, uh, God bless you, a DC fan, uh, I think our culture has kind of a fascination, wouldn't you agree, with, with where heroes are from, where people are from. John 1 is an, it's an origin story of sorts. You might say it's the origin story of Christmas. And Christmas, uh, I don't know about you, but Christmas to me is sort of an odd thing nowadays, culturally in this moment. Uh, we observe it, it's generally celebrated, uh, but I'm, I'm not quite sure, even if you've, if you've been a follower of Jesus uh, for your whole life, or if you're maybe new to this thing called Christianity, or maybe you're here this morning and you, you're, you're invited by a friend or a family member, but you don't believe any of it, um, I'm not quite sure any of us really understand the origin story to its depths of Christmas. Um, I was recently listening to one of my favorite holiday soundtracks, the music from Home Alone, which is also uh, the best uh, Christmas movie. Uh, we can argue about that after the service. And some of the lyrics caught my attention. One of the songs goes like this, candles in the window, shadows painting the ceiling, gazing at the fire glow, feeling that gingerbread feeling, precious moments, special people, happy faces I can see. Is that what Christmas is all about? Precious moments, happy faces, that gingerbread feeling, or is it something more? This morning, I want us to take a look at this 2,000-year-old origin story and see what, it, see what it tells us. And I'd like to do that kind of just in three parts this morning. First, I'd like to see that uh, this passage that Liz read, um, it, it gives us a Christmas revelation. It gives us a Christmas revelation. That's the first thing. And then second, it shows us the Christmas rejection. And then third, it invites us to receive Christmas. So first, it gives us a Christmas revelation. Secondly, it shows us the Christmas rejection. And then third, it invites us. It invites you and me this morning to receive Christmas. So let's just go in that order. First, uh, the Christmas revelation. If you followed us the last couple of weeks, you know that this origin story in John 1 is all about uh, this man uh, known as Jesus of Nazareth. He was, he's, a, he's a Jewish man. He lived two millennia, millennia ago, and he claimed to be God in the flesh. God come to meet us. God come to be with us. Uh, now, in this passage, John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends... Uh, who was one of Jesus' followers, he's telling the story throughout John 1 and then later into this, this narrative that he's crafted. He's telling us the story that his friend Jesus is the logic and the Lord behind all of reality, behind everything that we see, that this man, Jesus, is the logic and the Lord behind all reality. If you've stuck with us the last couple of weeks, you know that he is, John describes him as the source of life, that life itself comes from this Jesus, uh, that he is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And what this passage tells us is that this Jesus, this, 
uh, the logic, the life, the light. This Jesus made everything. That's what he says in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Uh, if, you've, if you've been around Trinity for some time, you know that I have a deep love of Aloha shirts. It's sort of out of season at the moment. I continue to wear them on non-Sundays. I love them. It's part of the whole kind of, for me, the whole dad ensemble. And sometimes when I'm at a thrift store or browsing for clothing, I'll browse the Aloha shirt section. But for me, uh, my, and my family knows this really well, I'm very particular There are certain Aloha shirt manufacturers and brands that I've come to know and respect and value and think they're worth uh, the cost. So what do I do when I'm browsing in the store? I look at the tag. I want to see where this shirt came from. Who made it? What's What's the quality? What's the worth of that shirt? And I think that if we had the right kind of microscope or the right kind of technology something that could really get down deep into our DNA, into into what we really are, I'm convinced that we would find the words written there made by Jesus. And there's a whole lot that can be said about that. We could spend weeks just on that truth alone, but let me just share one, one thing that comes out of that truth, that you were made by Jesus. It's this, friend, that you inherently, just by, just by your being, you are worthy of love. That's why you were created. That's your origin story. You were made to receive the affection, the delight, the gaze of a personal God. And I say, this, I say this this morning because I know that there are many of you here who don't feel that. You feel like trash. You feel worthless. You have this nagging sense in your life. You have this nagging sense deep down that nobody sees, nobody cares, nobody recognizes. One of my favorite movies this year was Toy Story 4. And if you saw it, then you know this character, Forky. Some of you feel like Forky. You feel feel dispensable, ugly, unlovable. Friend, you're not. You were dreamed up by the God of the universe, the God who made everything. And he knew that this world, this, our cosmos, would be less of a place without you here. Imagine that, just for a moment, just sit in that reality. It means you're worthy of love. But it also means this. So is the other guy. It means that the person on your right and the person on your left, the annoying kid in your class, the frustrating colleague in the office, was, was made by Jesus. The guy who voted for Trump was made by Jesus. The guy who didn't was also made by Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it best. He said this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, 
these are mortal, and their life to, is to ours as a life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. You were made, friend, you were made by and for Jesus, and you are inherently worthy of love. Everyone in this room, all of your neighbors, all of your colleagues, all of your classmates, that's the Christmas revelation. But there's tragedy. It's in verse 11. You, I wonder if you picked up on it this morning. There's tragedy. The God who created you and me, this Jesus who made us, who made you, he came to his own, and they rejected him. That's the Christmas rejection. That's point two, the Christmas rejection. You see, far from smiling faces and happy people and that gingerbread feeling, the first Christmas... And the entirety of Jesus' life was replete with humanity's refusal and rejection of a personal God, of a personal creator, of this Jesus. And I think what's happening in verse 11 is the apostle John is getting at one of the most piercing dynamics of the human heart. And it's this, Jesus came to his world, he came to his own he came to his own people, the people who should have most easily recognized him, the people that he belonged to by rights and heritage, and they rejected him. They refused him. They ignored him, and they finally crucified him. But here's, here's the thing. It's not as if they wanted nothing. They didn't just reject Jesus because they were rejecting everything. There was something they wanted, and the hardest part of this passage is that they did not want him. They did not want this Jesus. And if you have, and if you're here this morning and you have any, any degree of self-awareness, any degree of sobriety in your life, you know that this is true of you. This is true of me. It's not as though we don't want anything. It's that we don't want this Jesus. And you know, even, even if you're a follower of Jesus for the last 70 years, you know that deep down there are parts of your life, areas of your life, areas of your mind in which you really don't want this Jesus. You're pushing him away. I don't know what it's like uh, for you around uh, in your house um, this time of year, especially if you have kids, but our, our place seems to be kind of steeped in the worst kind of, of rank materialism. Uh, my son, whom I love, and I need to get out of the habit of embarrassing, uh, but he's been keeping a Christmas list on the refrigerator for the past eight months. And he adds to it religiously. Anytime something catches his fancy, it goes up on the list, uh, and I'm never going to be able to catch up. And as funny and also as sad as that is, I think for you and me as I was reflecting on that list and uh, this week, we never quite grow out of that. Uh, that, that, that dynamic of the human heart to desire and to need and to, and to, and to want things, it just evolves into something more stealth, stealthy and insidious. We want acceptance, not Jesus. We want respect, not Jesus. We want comfort, not Jesus. We want acknowledgement, not Jesus. But you know what happens with those desires, right? You get the acceptance letter. 
but the school turns out to not quite match your expectations. You make the team, but then you've got to relentlessly work to maintain your position. Your boss gives you accolades on the project you work so hard on, but what happens? The euphoria dies over the weekend. There's a new project Monday morning. You map out the perfect vacation, and it might be the restaurants, it might be the hotel or the excursions, but they, they don't quite measure up, do they? They still leave you searching. For what? What is that? I would suspect that there are many of you here who find yourself at that place this morning, right now. Some of you may have made it. You got the job, you got the perfect spouse, you got the house, you live in the ideal school district, but there's a sense that there's something missing. And so you're on this hedonic treadmill where with increasing salaries and stuff and experiences, your expectations and your desires increase as well and eventually you become too exhausted to continue. And just like a physical treadmill, the change in speed, the change in pace doesn't result in a change in location. And some of you are here and this morning you've never landed the perfect job or the right spouse, or the right relationship, or the right zip code, and you're laying in your bed at 39 and realizing that the way you are living has almost no resemblance to the life that you thought you always wanted. And you become either resentful or despairing. You're either blaming other people or you're blaming yourself. And some of you may be here today and you're, you're admittedly not that interested in Jesus. You're like these, uh, these people in the first century who, uh, well, maybe you're not rejecting Jesus, but you're just sort of not interested in him. Uh, you're fine if other people want to believe in him or celebrate his birthday, but it's just not your thing, and you sort of, that doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? Well, think of it this way. Imagine you have a child. You do everything for that child. You love that child. You work hard to provide an amazing life for her, full of opportunity and privilege, and she grows up, and then once a year you get a Christmas card in the mail, um, but there's, there's no relationship. She never demonstrates any affection or love. I think we can, I think if you put yourself in that situation, and maybe that's even your experience, I think we can all agree that that would be wrong. There would be something, there would be something really wrong in that scenario. John 1 says that Jesus created you. He keeps you alive every moment. Everything that you have is sourced in that Jesus. And that means that you owe him not just the occasional trip to church, the occasional Christmas card, or some kind of social do-gooderism, but you owe him your love. He's to be your chief desire, the thing you want most. See, the case for Christianity is that you were made to want. You were made to desire. You were created to, to love and receive love. And Christianity says that fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness cannot be found ultimately anywhere else. It can only be found in this particular man, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh who lived, died, and came alive again in the first century. Listen to C.S. Lewis again. In Mere Christianity, he says, Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. 
Friends, aim at Jesus and you will get satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment. But aim at those other things and you'll get neither. So you've seen the Christmas revelation. We were made by Jesus. But there's also the tragedy of the Christmas rejection, right? That even though we were made by Jesus, we ignore him. We deflect. We outright reject him. Because we believe there's something else that will make us happy. So let's third and finally look at the Christmas invitation. Point three, the Christmas invitation. There's something for you to receive. And this is right where Christianity diverges with literally everything else. This is where Christianity, it it, it just goes in the, the complete opposite direction of everything that we're wired to believe, everything that we're wired to think. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But what comes next? What's the next line in verse 12? But to those who got their act together, he gave the right to become children of God. But to those who read their Bible faithfully, he gave the right to become the children of God. But to those who recycled and bought reusable straws and helped end the fight for injustice and poverty and climate change, he gave the right to become children of God. But to those who made a good effort and did their best and turned over a new leaf, he gave, no, This is where Christianity brings something entirely new. John says that to those who did receive Jesus, he gave to them the right to become children of God. And what does John mean by receive Jesus? He explains later in the verse. Does he mean get religious? Does he mean reform your life? No. He tells you receiving Jesus means believing Believing in his name. Something for nothing. That's Christianity. Something for nothing. And in some sense, that's the whole of the Christian life. I don't know what you've been told about Christianity. I don't know what you grew up believing. But Christianity is all about something for nothing. The big effort in the Christian life, the big effort in following Jesus is just believing that truth that you get something for nothing. It's recognizing that all that we have done and all we can do is nothing. Now you may think to yourself, well, isn't, isn't my believing, isn't, uh, isn't this idea of faith, of of?" of banking your life on this Jesus, of putting him at the center of all that I am, isn't that something? Isn't that the thing that I'm doing? Well, not exactly, because remember what John has said. John says that everything in the cosmos was created and is held together by Jesus. Every ability you have, your ability to feel and to think and to move is given to you by God. Maybe you, did, maybe you did this as a child. I know I did. But did you ever go to your parents and say, um, you know, Mom, I'd like, to, I'd like to buy you a Christmas present. Uh, and I need some money. Right? Uh, and, of course, what, is a, what does a good parent do? Of course, you're going to bring out a 20, and you're going to have your child, you're going to drive the kid to the store. They're going to pick out a gift. They're going to wrap it. You know what it is. They're going to put it under the tree. And of course, you're going to open it Christmas morning, and you're going to be delighted in the gift. But at the end of the day, it came from you. The act of faith itself, the believing in his name, 
is just that. It's a gift from God. Jesus will say later in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So let me close here. What do you gain? Friend, what do you gain by believing in Jesus, by believing in his name, by by becoming a child of God? Two things. I think two things are entailed by what John describes as the right to become children of God, at least two things. First, you have a heavenly father. My son calls me Papa. You could say it like this. You have a proud Papa. Some of you this morning are under the weight of other people's opinions and evaluations and judgments, or you're under just the weight of your own shame your own guilt, your own feelings of worthlessness. And the Bible says that you have a papa who is proud of you, who is proud to call you his child. I know we just had somewhat of a Christmas concert, but I was recently at my kids' Christmas concert for their school. Have you ever been to, like, I mean, have you sat in a room with a bunch of parents watching their kids sing? What are they doing? They're all standing on their tiptoes. They've got their smartphones out. They're recording. There's tears in their eyes. There's hearts full of love and joy and sheer delight in a child who is barely mouthing the words joy to the world and deck the halls, right? Why? Because because we know this. Parental love is one of the strongest forces in all of the universe, And that's because at the heart of reality is a father who out of unnecessary, ridiculous, extravagant, reckless love created you and redeemed you. That's one of your rights. You have a a father who, who, who gets out the phone, who stands on his tiptoes with tears streaming down his face in utter delight of you but you also have an imperishable inheritance. Have you ever been to an adoption? I was recently at one. And you know what was was fascinating for me, the thing that blew me away about being in the courtroom at an adoption is to hear that actually, in the state of California at least, I assume it's like this in other states as well, but California law makes it harder for you to disinherit your adopted child than your own flesh and blood. Now think about that for a moment. If California law makes it harder for you to disinherit your adopted child than your own flesh and blood, how much more our Heavenly Father, who has adopted you by the merits and through the work and through the life and death and resurrection of His only begotten Son, you are secure You are the apple of your father's eye. It would be more more possible for God not to be than for him to forsake his relationship with you. That's how much he loves you. There is nothing in all the world that can separate you from that love. God would cease to be God if he broke that covenant. If he broke that relationship. Don't you want that kind of security? Don't you want at the core of who you are to have that kind of comfort and joy? 
How do you get it? If you believe. If you believe in Jesus, in his name, in all that he is and has done and is doing for you. If you believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died on the cross, a substitutionary act of self-sacrifice to cancel your debt, and that he rose again to proclaim victory over your sin, over your shame, over death itself. And if you believe that God the Father accepts you because of the work of his son, then you are his child. You're secure. You're accepted. You're loved. So I ask you this morning, will you receive this Christmas that gift? It's free. There are no strings attached. It's sheer and utter grace. Let me close with a poem by Madeline Langle entitled The First Coming. He did not wait till the world was ready, till men and nations were at peace. He came when the heavens were unsteady and prisoners cried out for release. He did not wait for the perfect time. He came when the need was deep and great. He dined with sinners in all their grime. He turned water into wine. He did not wait till hearts were pure. In joy, he came to a tarnished world of sin and doubt, To a world like ours of anguish, shame he came, and his light would not go out. He came to a world which did not mesh to heal its tangles, shield its scorn. In the mystery of the word made flesh, the maker of the stars was born. We cannot wait till the world is sane to raise our songs with joyful voice. For to share our grief, to touch our pain, he came with love. Rejoice. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, what greater truth in all the world is there than this, that you loved the world that you made so much that you gave your one and only son, the person who was most precious to you, your beloved. You gave him for the life of the world so that everyone who would put their faith and their hope and their trust in this Jesus would never be put to shame, would never receive condemnation, would be free, would live in the security and the joy and the comfort of a child of God. Father, I pray that for my own soul, and I pray that for my friends gathered here, that we would receive this Jesus And that by receiving him and believing in him, we might receive the right of of a child of God. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.